Now, thanks in part to the work of incredible researchers like you, we live in an America today where HIV is actually a chronic manageable condition. And one byproduct of that is that a lot of young people today can't fathom the HIV epidemic. Um, can you paint us a brief picture of what the HIV landscape looked like when you decided to step in and why you made that decision? Well, it was fortuitous that I saw some of the initial cases of HIV um, in late 1980, early 1981, mm -hmm. as I was finishing my medical training and as I was becoming so-called chief medical resident in the mm -hmm. west side of Los Angeles. And um, it was clear that the initial cases mm -hmm. were devastating. Mm -hmm. They were a death sentence in a matter of mm -hmm. weeks. Uh, folks developed uh, numerous infectious complications mm -hmm. from their obvious immunodeficiency. Mm -hmm. And it was a horrible death, and it was a, it was a medical mystery that uh, really scared mm -hmm. patients and physicians mm -hmm. alike. Yeah. Wow, wow. And um, so at that time, you were crucial in the development of antiretroviral therapy. And then your lab has also focused on developing vaccines. Where are you now in the research? What kind of questions are you looking to investigate? Right. <clears throat> so for the first 15 years or so of my career in this field, I concentrated on sort of basic understanding of the virus and, and its relationship to the mm -hmm. host, to the infected person. Mm -hmm. right. and, and from that knowledge, we worked on uh, HIV therapy quite a bit and mm -hmm. championed the idea mm -hmm. of combination therapy that ultimately led to controlling HIV. Mm -hmm. But for the last 15 years or so, uh, my group has been focused on HIV prevention, mm -hmm. really trying to find either a vaccine mm -hmm. or say, a substitute for a vaccine mm -hmm. that would block transmission of uh, HIV from person to person. Mm -hmm. and. These days, we're largely focused on engineering antibodies that are very, very powerful that would prevent mm -hmm. uh, transmission. And we have ventured back to the treatment side a little bit to work on, uh, again, the use of antibody for a mm -hmm. uh, cure of HIV. Right, got it. Um, last summer, I had the opportunity to talk with a couple of Boston Public Health Commissioners. Um, and their claim was that we're almost writing the last few chapters of the HIV story um, now that treatment has elongated the lives of people living with the virus so much. How would you assess that claim? Do you think we're really at the, in the final few chapters of HIV research or is the story still unfolding? Well, I think from my perspective, we have a long ways to go. A long way. Uh, in terms of an absolute cure and the development of a protective vaccine. Those would take still some time. But their mm -hmm. perspective is not entirely wrong in the sense that mm -hmm. in America, patients no longer die uh, mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. from HIV infection. In fact, as you said earlier, it is a manageable disease. And most recently diagnosed patients could live a fairly normal mm -hmm. lifespan. So it is true it's become a chronic infectious disease mm -hmm. that is manageable. 
But that's the American perspective. But remember, most cases are outside of the U.S., particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And therapies, although being delivered in large quantities now, are still insufficient for most of the infected individuals. So many still die very quickly. Uh, There's still over a million deaths per year. Uh, so, uh, so we, we have to keep a, a proper perspective on this epidemic. There's the American uh, situation, there's a larger global situation. Right, right. Do you think, in addition to that, we also have to break down the American situation into different demographical groups? Yes, yes, the epidemic has changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was largely, at the beginning, a mm-hmm. white white gay male disease. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, while the gay population is still preferentially affected, uh, it's the minority uh, Mm -hmm. population, blacks and Hispanic, that's uh, affected the most. Right, right. I often like to imbue any discussion of HIV and HIV research with the public health aspect. Um, particularly for for HIV, because I think going through history, you would be hard pressed to find a disease more mired in socializing stigma, mm-hmm. um, unless maybe leprosy from biblical times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you had the opportunity to work closely with the famous NBA player Magic Johnson uh, around the time of his HIV diagnosis. Mm-hmm. What do you think the public disclosure of that diagnosis did for HIV research at that time? And are we still you know, did public perception of HIV change greatly as a result of his coming out about that openly? Well, I had the chance to consult with him and then uh, make his diagnosis and and then become his physician ever since uh, 1991 uh, when he found out on an insurance test that he was HIV positive. We confirmed that test and went on to do many others to make sure that the diagnosis was correct. And as you might recall, 1991, we hadn't developed all the good therapies. Mm -hmm. So uh, his fate uh, was quite uncertain, and he was scared and and, uh, Mm -hmm. therefore very quickly retired from the NBA uh, near his prime, you could say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that really shocked the world in that you know, largely in America and elsewhere, it was thought as a as a gay disease, mm-hmm. and and Magic Johnson was not a, a gay person. Mm-hmm. So, uh, he he helped to destigmatize the disease to mm-hmm. some extent, and he was quite open about it, which mm-hmm. is another shining example of what he'd done. Mm-hmm. Rather than uh, hiding it, he disclosed it promptly and became a poster child, so to speak, uh, for, for those uh, affected by HIV. And, and so he did his part in, in, to a large extent uh, with the input of his advisors and, and so on, and friends and family. But uh, he certainly was helpful in, in uh, addressing the stigmatization and the discrimination that come with it uh, associated with HIV infection. Interestingly, as therapies got better and his virus was brought under control, he now has become the poster child what good therapy could do. And, you know, it's 26 years post-diagnosis and he's 
you may have seen him. He's quite healthy and, in fact, putting on weight and, you know, um, um, and and he he is now representative of what mm-hmm. what therapy could accomplish uh, in mm-hmm. infect the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and your lab are really well known for the therapeutic products that have changed the HIV story for so many people. But oftentimes, developing the product isn't enough. Do you find that with HIV in particular, you have to work with community groups and um, the public health sector a lot to get this product out into the world and and into the hands of the people who need it most? Yeah, there's, you know, there's a spectrum. You could do basic research, and then some of that information leads you to clinical development of products. And then when you have what looks like promising products, you have to work on in the clinic mm-hmm. to, to prove that the product is efficacious. Mm-hmm. And then after that, when it's approved and established as scientific fact mm-hmm. that it's efficacious, you have to implement it. And that field implementation sometimes could take for for almost for what's seemingly forever. Well, look, we have had a polio vaccine for a long time, and yet its worldwide implementation is still mm-hmm. underway. Uh, hopefully, in the final mm-hmm. stages. But and and we, you know, the only one that we have done the full implementation and eradication mm-hmm. is is uh, smallpox. But HIV, we have a long ways to go, that these therapies are being delivered to a minority of infected individuals. Uh, Even in the U.S., there are many remain undiagnosed and therefore untreated. Uh, So there's a long ways to go uh, in that effort. Got it. You mentioned basic research. And um, for a long time, we didn't know anything about the virus. So before therapy, we had to understand what we were working with. Mm -hmm. And we spent so much time, I think, on basic research that we probably know more about HIV than we do about any other virus. That's safe to say. Yeah, (laughs) I just want to make sure I'm Uh not overreaching there. But um, one thing I'm often fascinated by is the offshoots of basic research. For example, when we think about the space race, out of that research, we got memory foam and satellite TV and ear, ther- ear thermometers that you can use at home, you know? Um, well, the HIV epidemic has, of course, been devastating. Have we gotten any really lasting scientific tools that have been great in application for other purposes? No doubt HIV research uh, has benefited many, many other areas of, of mm-hmm. medicine. Mm-hmm. I would just site two. Um, mm-hmm. One is HIV infects the human immune system and destroys mm-hmm. it and then all the complications mm-hmm. uh, that follow uh, mm-hmm. with the immunodeficiency. And, and so, you know, prior to that, the, hu- the immune mm-hmm. system was studied largely through animals, particularly mice. Mm-hmm. But the HIV epidemic focused the attention immunologists and physicians on human immunology and, and help to advance that field a great deal, which is now being applied to vaccines and mm-hmm. cancer immunotherapy mm-hmm. in, in ways that are uh, somewhat underappreciated by the general public. Mm-hmm. So it, the human immunology area has been advanced a great deal through HIV-AIDS research. The other is drug development. 
-hmm. You know, HIV had unique targets like its reverse transcriptase mm -hmm. enzyme, its protease enzyme, mm -hmm. its integrase enzyme. Mm -hmm. And scientists in the field have been able to design uh, molecules that block those enzymes mm -hmm. in very specific ways without affecting normal enzymes in our mm -hmm. body. And this, that area progressed so nicely in, in the HIV field mm -hmm. that that knowledge then spun off to affect uh, other drug development efforts. Mm -hmm. The most uh, exemplary would be uh, its application to a hepatitis C virus. Mm -hmm. And there it had a number of enzymes that could be similarly uh, blocked and the process was facilitated a great deal by HIV research. And in fact, the hep C com community has advanced so much that they could in fact cure hepatitis C infection because they develop great drug and that virus doesn't persist in the same way that HIV does. So a cure is now possible. And the foundation for all that effort was laid through HIV drug development, but it, for example, benefited hepatitis C drug development. Wow, wow, that's incredible. I wanna to stick to this topic of different researchers mm -hmm. coalescing. I find it very interesting in particular because I know you were initially drawn to physics and math and really quantitative work. Um, but HIV, of course, necessitates really good chemical and biological understanding as well. So how have you tried to promote interdisciplinary collaboration? Well, you know, people come from, go into medicine from various backgrounds. So uh, for me, I, I was initially sort of a science geek, and, and so I, I did well in school in math, and, and uh, when I started college, uh, decided to fo focus on physics, which mm -hmm. provided me a, a much more quantitative background than mm -hmm. the usual physician mm -hmm. or physician scientist. Mm -hmm. and, and that actually made a tremendous difference in, in my career because, um, because of the seminal work that I have done in the basic research area mm -hmm. really was on, only possible because I was not intimidated by thinking quantitatively. And that led me to uh, interpret certain results differently from mm -hmm. my colleagues in the field mm -hmm. and to, to then mm -hmm. derive certain uh, understanding about HIV. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. All right, we're gonna take a sharp right turn. Mm -hmm. When the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes realized that the volume of the king's golden crown could be found by immersing it in water, he famously shouted, Eureka. And I love the Eureka moments mm -hmm. of life and of science. So have you had a Eureka or an aha moment? And tell us what it was. Well, I, I will just, y yes. I mean, they don't come <laughs> that frequently. You know, doing science, uh, um, one, one faces uh, more failures than successes. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was a young physician, um, already in the field, but the, you know, it, the HIV uh, had just been discovered, mm -hmm. and I saw patients coming to the hospital, um, 
with what looked like a flu syndrome, but had all sorts of headache and neurologic complications. One of the eureka moments was I not only took care of those patients, but I thought, could this be an early manifestation of initial HIV infection? And, 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 and it turned out to be true, and this was uh-huh. in 19, late 1984, early 1985. And so it turned out that the eureka moment was, wow, when HIV infects a person, there was actually an illness, but that illness would lasted a couple of weeks only, and it's associated with neurologic symptoms mm-hmm. in some, and the virus. I did the spinal tap, took the fluid to the lab, and showed that there is virus, and the virus not only invaded the, the uh, immune system cells, but also the central nervous system. Yeah. And, and so that is one eureka moment from the from the clinic actually mm-hmm. with laboratory support mm-hmm. but the most prominent eureka moment is actually going back to what i just said with in response to your last question the, is is in 1994 mm-hmm. and this is after we administered the new so-called protease inhibitors mm-hmm. to patients mm-hmm. and we saw the amount of virus fall in the blood. Mm-hmm. And the fall was well captured by frequent measurements of the so-called viral load. So we were able to then uh, show the rate of decay of virus. And of course, it was so dramatic that everyone was celebrating. It, obvious, mm-hmm. it was obvious that we controlled the virus very well. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it really, the Eureka moment was the next question. Well, why does the virus drop so dramatically? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the, this is where the quantitative background comes in, right? right? You, you, you ask the next layer of question mm-hmm. and say, why does it fall? The, the simple answer is, prior to the intervention, there was mm-hmm. a steady state between the host and the virus. Mm-hmm. The amount of virus produced was X, mm-hmm. but the amount of virus cleared by the body was X, and that's mm-hmm. why you have a steady state. But if you suddenly put the brakes on, you see how quickly it falls, and that steady state turns out to be highly dynamic, and it, it's relentless, it's every day, and we calculated the level. And from that information, you said the virus is just cranking away like crazy. It's, it's nonstop, and it's going through one generation in a day or two, and it puts out billions and billions of particles mm-hmm. per day. And we know the mutation rate for HIV. So we could really very quickly calculate how quickly this virus was evolving. Mm -hmm. And that evolutionary rate doomed monotherapy because the virus will certainly come to evade drug. And it led us to then 1995 Mm -hmm. to pilot three combination therapy trials Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm which then proved the whole concept to be true. So that eureka moment was really understanding the basic replication rate of HIV, which very quickly led to the combination therapy. And a year after that, in 1996, by that summer, uh, we were able to report the results. And that was, you could say, a turning point in the treatment of HIV infection. Wow, that's an incredible eureka moment. But you prefaced it by saying that they don't come often. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I, you know, I know that any young aspiring scientist like myself actually have found that to be true pretty early on. Mm -hmm. um, failure is the more frequent outcome. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to me and people like me? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I've given uh, commencement speeches, and, and so I've been put in position to, to give such advice to uh, young folks who are embarking on their new careers. So I think, you know, the lessons I've, I've learned is that, you know, since failure, life is replete with failure, you, you, you have to uh, take risk and not be so afraid to, uh, to fail. And I'm not talking about wild risk, I'm talking about informed risk. Um, and you can't just sit by the sideline because you're mm -hmm. too overly uh, fearful of failure. Um, and then once you take informed risk, you, you know, you, you, you have to pre also be prepared to seize those opportunities that mm -hmm. are uh, bubbled up by serendipity. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. so you have to recognize it, you have to seize it, and then you have to run with it. There are many other things that I, I often say, I, in, particularly in science, is that you have to know what is truth and what is not truth. And you have, what is truth and what is, mm -hmm. you know, pretending to be truth, dogma. And sometimes, you know, in, with good intentions, some things are taught as truth when there's simply dogma, mm -hmm. personal beliefs, and learning to discriminate uh, is very, very important, particularly in the scientific discipline, but in, in life in general, particularly nowadays. <laughs> um, and, and so that's uh, another major lesson. But, you know, the, the others that I often talk about uh, uh, is knowing the difference between could and should. The two very simple words that too often are used interchangeably when they should not be. And in science, you know, when you have a set of results, there are a bunch of things you could do, but what are the one or few things you should do? And that will lead you to a critical path to answer the critical questions. And you don't just become busy doing everything under the sun, uh, trying to, because you need to know which one will generate meaningful results that will advance the field. Mm -hmm. So the the it's a very simple message, and that applies to science in particular. But again, we mm -hmm. think it applies to to life. the The other that I often talk about is is vision and action mm -hmm. and and you know you see a lot of people full of vision but they don't carry it out and then you see a lot of people who are busy all the time but they don't have a unified vision of where they want to mm -hmm. go and proper balance between those both. two uh -huh. uh, is is obviously important and there's a mm -hmm. there's a actually a very famous Japanese proverb mm -hmm. that says you know, vision without action is a dream. Mm -hmm. But action without vision is a nightmare. And, and I, love I, that. I always remember that and I try to tell my postdocs and students that, 
you know, think about that. And uh, true success is is the balance of the two and figuring out what you should be doing and then become passionate about it and, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, go at it full force. Um, and, you know, don't be afraid to fail and, and, and just uh, uh, carry on. Yeah. Got it. Amazing. Incredible. So you are the research extraordinaire by day. What do you do when you get out of the lab? Do you do? Do you have any fun hobbies? Well, I have always had a lot of <laughs> fun hobbies over the years, but they have changed over the years. Oh. Uh, I think when I was younger, despite being, you know, what these some of some folks might call a science geek, I I always play games and play sports. Oh. Uh, I I love. Uh, car games, um, including bridge. Um, I love uh, the Chinese mahjong game. Um, and I, when I was younger, I played baseball. I played basketball, despite not being so tall. Um, and I played tennis and table tennis. Uh, later in life, I took on skiing. Um, I still do that, but not as crazily as uh, some of the <laughs> younger. Informed risk. <laughs> informed risk. Um, and then these days, I don't play basketball or baseball much, but I uh, play a little bit of tennis, but much more golf. Wow. And I find that as a, a fairly relaxing game that I continue to play for many years to come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still do a little bit of skiing in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoy reading a good book and uh, watch a good movie, uh, like many people. So those are some of my activities outside of uh, science. You sound like a real outdoorsman, and as a Californian, mm-hmm. that resonates well with me. What also resonates with me is the fact that you're a California Hall of Famer. I couldn't be prouder of having someone represent us like that. Um, it, so in our eyes, you are a hero. Uh, pioneering your pioneering efforts have saved countless lives and have further scientific innovation in your own eyes what do you hope your legacy will be well (laughs) yeah big question you know generally one doesn't talk about one's legacy while he he or she is still alive but um, you know I I like to Mm -hmm. I like to think that I was by accident there at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. Mm-hmm. So it was a accidental encounter. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that, you know, since, since 1980, 81, mm-hmm. um, I've been focused on this. And uh, I want to say that uh, uh, through my work, I made a positive difference in this epidemic. Yeah. And it's an epidemic that arguably could be called the worst in human history. Mm 